The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 8, The Populace, Part 2. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, so as always, before we get started, let me just thank you for listening. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at American HisCast if you're into that whole social media thing. Um, questions, comments, concerns, or complaints, send them over to Sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. If you'd like to join the mailing list to receive updates about the show and things like that, just head over to the website and sign up. The address is www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. And finally, if you would like to support the show, you can join our Patreon group. To do so, just head over to the website. Down at the bottom is our Patreon button. Click that bad boy and the rest is self-explanatory. For as little as $2 a month, you have access to the episodes before everybody else, and those episodes are ad-free. For a couple bucks more per month, you get access to a bonus series, which right now is 1983, the year the world almost ended. Now, actually, before we get started, um, I should remember, I can't believe I forgot, it's time to give a few shout-outs for some positive reviews. I can't remember the last time that I did, I did this, so I'm going to just start with the year 2020. Um, the first review is Kicks the Ball. She said, great podcast, five stars. I'm a huge American history fan. I enjoy listening to the show during my morning commute to work. Makes the time and traffic fly by. So thank you very much, Kicks the Ball. Uh, Mark from the Rio Grande Valley also gave us five stars. Said um, that he's from South Texas and Hispanic and very much enjoyed the Mexican uh, Texas episodes and the show as a whole. So thank you, Mark. I uh, hope you're still listening. Um, let's see. Just recently, we had one from Goat Mama 0108 uh, one of my favorite podcasts on American history. Gave us five stars. So thank you, Goat Mama. Interesting uh, screen name there. Uh, and then we've got one from Rita M in Texas, another Texan. Uh, gave us five stars. So thank you, Rita. And finally, a for a run. Um, gave us five stars, said that history tends to be boring, but, um, he's enjoying this show. Apparently he is an engineer with STEM training, um, says that we are objective, informative, and interesting. So thank you, A for a run. Um, if you'd like to help out the show, head over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and it will help other people find the show as well. All right. So as always, before we actually start the show, let's get the song of the weekend. This week... Um, once again, courtesy of the Internet Archive, the song is Maple Leaf Rag, and we'll see you in a few minutes.
Okay, so last time we talked about the political rise of the farmer, the grange, and the populace. Today we continue that discussion, and we start off with the election of 1892. Um, the Democrats nominated Grover Cleveland, who had been president four years earlier. Now, Cleveland was more conservative this, at this point than he had been during his first term, and some attribute that to the fact that he was uh, in law, he was practicing um, and representing wealthy businessmen. I don't know if I buy that, but that's what some people would say. Now, the Republicans, on the other hand, and unsurprisingly, renominated President Benjamin Harrison, who championed a new protective tariff. Now, this was not surprising, as the protective tariff said long been a centerpiece of first the old Whig Party and then the Republican parties. Then, finally, you had the People's Party, also known as the Populists. They nominated General James B. Weaver. Uh, delegates from the Farmers' Alliances, the Knights of Labor, Nationalists, and Land and Labor Parties, they all met in Omaha, Nebraska, and they ended up creating what became known as the Omaha Platform. Now, this was written by Ignatius Donnelly, and it had nine major points, and we're going to talk quickly about each one of them. Um, first was the free and unlimited coinage of silver at a ratio of 16 to 1. This was to try and stimulate inflation. Okay, so they were actually proposing to let's get inflation um, to increase. The second part was a graduated income tax to redistribute wealth. The third was government ownership of the telephone, the telegraph, and the railroads. Now, the fourth point, they called for the implementation of what was known as initiative, referendum, and recall. Just by way of a quick explanation, initiative is when the people of a state place a new proposed law on the ballot, and if it passes, it becomes law. Referendum, that's when the people of a state um, place a proposition to overturn an existing law on the ballot. If it passes, the existing law is removed. Finally, you had recall. If the people of the state place a proposition on the ballot to remove an elected official and said proposition passes, then that official is removed. Now, their fifth proposal was the creation of postal savings banks. Um, these were to be safe repositories run by the government. The idea was that they were safer than banks, although I think the last people I would trust my money with are government officials. I mean, these guys got the army, they've got the guns. Uh, who are you going to complain to, right? Um, sixth, they called for the government to give land grants to settlers instead of giving land to the railroads. Seventh, they called for the direct election of senators. Uh, if you don't know it, before 1913, senators were not elected by the people. They were appointed by the legislature of a state. So, for example, each state has two senators. Two senators from Texas would be appointed by the legislature for six years. When their term is up, it can be renewed, or the legislature can replace them. Now, this is different, of course, than the members of the House of Representatives. They are elected by the people. Thus, the idea was that senators, who serve for longer terms and are not elected by the people, were supposed to act as a break um, on the worst impulses of the democratically elected House. Now, the eighth idea was the passage of a federal law making the workday eight hours. And ninth, finally, I know, finally, was the sub-treasury plan. However, that was defeated and thus not part of the final document. As I said earlier, James B. Weaver was nominated as the populist candidate for president. He was a former abolitionist and general in the army. He also had been the Greenback Labor Party presidential nominee in 1880. Now, the campaign itself centered on the protective tariff. The epidemic of strikes, which we discussed in episode 6, they damaged the presidency of Harrison. Workers refuted his claim that higher tariffs meant higher wages. 
Then you had the Homestead Steel Strike of 1892, which led to thousands of lost votes for the GOP. In the end, Cleveland defeated Harrison 277 to 145. Thus, Grover Cleveland became the first and so far only president in U.S. history to serve two non-consecutive terms. Now, as for the populists, they won over a million votes and had 22 electoral votes for Weaver. Uh, it was one of the few third parties in U.S. history to win electoral votes. Its support came mostly from Kansas, Colorado, Idaho, and Nevada. They ended up electing three governors, five U.S. senators, and 10 representatives. Now, all in all, they had a total of 1,500 candidates elected to offices nationwide. Now, could the populists have won even more? I actually think they could have. And why do I say that? Well, the problem for them was the South. Their indebted white farmers refused to desert the Democratic Party as they were worried they would lose political power to blacks who claimed more than a million members in the segregated Colored Farmers Alliance. Racial prejudice kept people who shared economic ties from uniting politically. All right, now we've got Grover Cleveland. Now, Grover Cleveland, uh, he was a hard money Democrat, and he assumes office in the middle of a monetary crisis. Um, in July of 1892, the U.S. Senate passed a free silver coinage bill. Now, this was just one event which caused confidence in the American gold standard to fall, even though the bill went no further than that. Now, banks started to insert clauses into the loans and mortgages that required you to pay in gold coin. This was a sign that the dollar was not trusted. Now, this led to a run on the U.S. Treasury. And in 1893, it persuaded banks in New York to return the gold they had drawn from the Treasury and to require payment in paper. Now, what was supposed to be an act to restore confidence in the dollar was clearly a sign of desperation on the part of the Treasury. In May 1893, the stock market collapsed, and in June, thanks to public distrust of fractional reserve banking, you had massive bank runs and failures throughout the country. Many banks, especially in the South and the West, were now allowed to suspend payment in specie currency and simply pay customers in paper. By the fall, suspension of specie payment made its way to the East, starting in New York City. In one year, the entire money supply of the United States saw a massive drop. However, by the end of 1893, the panic was over as public confidence, at least overseas, was restored by the repeal of the Sherman uh, Silver Purchase Act in November. This helped to stop the long-term exodus of gold, which had been leaving the country for a couple of years. The fact that William Jennings Bryan won the nomination in 1896 caused some more problems for the gold standard, but the victory of the pro-gold Republicans in that election put an end to the problem of domestic and foreign confidence in the gold standard, at least for the time being. So let's talk about the election of 1896. Now, some might argue that this was the most important election in American political history since the election of 1860. Um, I don't think I can argue that, or at least argue against that, as it does see a transformation in the American party system. The Republicans, again, they nominated William McKinley, a former Ohio congressman. He was the choice of one Marcus Hanna, an iron tycoon who had, at one time, bailed McKinley out of a personal debt that totaled $100,000, which doesn't sound like a lot to our modern ears, but in the 1890s, that's quite a bit of money. Hanna believed the function of government was to aid businesses, and that if business prospered, the, works pro the workers prospered. He ended up raising $3.5 million for the campaign compared to the Democrats, who raised a total of $300,000. Okay, with that, um, let's just take a break. I'll be back in a second. Listeners who found recent American History podcast episodes about railroads and labor interesting 
might also enjoy the podcast, The Industrial Revolutions. The Industrial Revolutions is a monthly podcast that tells the story of the past 250 years and of the impact of technological innovations on our economies, work lives, our politics, our families, and more. The Industrial Revolutions is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. You can also find it at www.industrialrevolutionspod.com. All right. While we know the Democrats were now on uh, no longer in the hard currency camp, the Republican platform sim- supported the gold standard. However, and I think this was a mistake, they added a statement advocating bimetallism, or a worldwide gold-silver standard. And what do I think this was a mistake? Bimetallism leads to one of the dangers of what is called Gresham's Law. Essentially, it states that bad money drives out good money. In other words, you're going to hoard that which is more valuable and spend that which is less valuable. So you'll use silver while gold will become more scarce. Now, as economist Marianne Rothbard pointed out in A History of Money and Banking in the United States, the important point to note about Gresham's Law is that it does not result from, quote, perverse free market competition, but of government using the compulsory legal tender power to privilege one money above another, end quote. Now, if you're wondering whether or not there are any real-world historical examples of this, yes, there are. Rothbard notes that in Britain in the 17th and 18th century, they maintained a bimetal standard and always overvalued gold and undervalued silver. This resulted in the outflow of silver coins and the influx of gold coins. And, as you would expect, any attempt to fix the situation was always too little too late. Finally, I should mention that, as always, the Republican platform contained a provision maintaining the protective tariff. Okay, so this leads leads us to the Democrats. Um, They nominated William Jennings Bryan. The party refused to endorse Cleveland because he supported the silver purchase repeal as well as his actions during the uh, Pullman strike. In the end, Cleveland left office an extremely unpopular man. Now, on the other hand, you had Bryan, a 36-year-old lawyer from Nebraska who was considered the premier orator of his generation. He was also, by the way, the first politician of his generation to lead a major party as champion of the poor, and was most certainly influenced by the populist movement. Jennings, of course, today is remembered for his cross of gold speech given at the Democratic National Convention. Probably his most famous line was, we will answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, quote, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, end quote. Um, obviously, Brian was influenced by the populist. I mean, that's should be clear. And so were the Democrats. The party platform, again, it, they stole it. They called for the free silver or the free unlimited coinage of silver at 16 to 1 or 16 ounces of gold to one ounce, uh, 16 ounces of silver, sorry, to one ounce of gold. So the amount of silver in the dollar would be worth about 50 cents. In the end, the populace and their platform had been absorbed by the Democrats. Now, as far as the campaign is concerned, Brian forced the silver issue to the forefront despite Hannah wanting his candidate to focus on the tariff. Hannah, as we said earlier, was for the gold standard. Thus, he waged a high-pressure campaign against silver, and he ended up raising the biggest war chest for an election campaign up to that point in American history. Now, further, McKinley waged an interesting campaign. He stayed at home. It is sometimes referred to as the front porch campaign, and actually, it's quite brilliant. McKinley made himself available to the public daily, except on Sunday, and received delegations on the front porch of his home in Canton, Ohio. Now, how is this possible, I hear you ask? 
Well, railroads subsidized the visitors with low rates, and the delegations marched through the streets of Canton on their way to the McKinley home. Delegations would have a spokesperson who would ask questions of the candidate, and then the candidate would respond. Now, these responses were campaign speeches crafted to suit the interest of the delegation in question. In other words, these events were highly scripted to avoid any mistakes. All right, now, the Democrats, on the other hand, were highly divided. Most of their newspapers refused to, to support Bryan. There was one major exception, and that was the New York Journal, a paper owned by William Randolph Hearst, whose fortune just so happened to be based on, yes, you guessed it, silver. At the end of the day, McKinley defeated Bryan 271 to 176. The GOP won the Northeast and the North, with Bryan winning the South and the West, with the exception being California and Oregon. This election was, as I said earlier, considered the most significant election by political historians since Lincoln in 1860. Why? There's five reasons, really. First, it was the last major effort by a major party to win agrarian votes. Going forward, farmers from this point um, were no longer a major uh, majority of the American voters. Secondly, the Republicans had control of the White House for 16 consecutive years and for 28 of the next 36 years. Third, voter participation diminished as the GOP was now seen as the party of the rich. Fourth, this is the start of the fourth party system, when large population centers determined the outcome of elections and farmers were discouraged and became less politically active than they had been in previous elections. And then finally, um, African-American rights were abandoned by the Republicans as the African-American vote in the South was no longer important. So I want to delve a little more deeply into this realignment as I think it's going to be important to us understanding the history as we go forward. The transformation of the party system in 1896 and the death of the third-party system spelled an end to what Rothbard called America's great laissez-faire, hard-money libertarian party. The Democratic Party was no longer the party of Jefferson, Jackson, and Cleveland. The Democrat Party moved from the right to the left, and were now, as a matter of fact, to the left of the Republican Party, which had been on the left of the Democrats. The GOP never was a libertarian, hard-money, free-market-minded party. Not at all. Remember, they came out of the Whigs. Um, further, whereas most elections in the 19th century offered voters a choice, those elections drew high interest. Half of the literate voters followed them with an intensity that we might find remarkable today. These are issues that they were following were banking, gold, and silver, and even tariffs. So why? Why were, they, why were these you know, half-literate voters um, following such esoteric issues so intensely? Well, the two parties were committed to a distinctive ideology that clashed with the other party's ideology. This clash of worldviews meant that you had fierce but also close contests. This meant turnout was high, often 80 to 90 percent range. Also, because there were few independent voters, politicians didn't blur their ideology. They were much more straightforward. Um, I want to quickly address uh, part of this election, and that's the issue of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by Frank L. Baum. Now, Oz can be used as a parable for the election, um, but as far as I can tell, the reality is this coincidental. This I don't I've not seen any evidence that it was done on purpose. However, it is pretty cool, so let us take a look. Supposedly, Dorothy represents the every man of the West. She is pure and likable. The yellow brick road is the gold standard. The silver slippers they were silver in the written version, but ruby in the film represented soft money. The scarecrow is the Midwestern farmer. Um, they are seen as stupid, 
but actually they have great wisdom. Now going on, we have the Tin Man. He represents uh, the Eastern labor being victimized by the Wicked Witch of the East. The City of Oz is the Eastern establishment. The wizard is either uh, McKinley or any Gilded Age president who is powerless to carry out their promises. Then you have the Cowardly Lion with the big roar but no bite. He is William Jennings Bryan. Ouch. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the East, by the way, uh, it represents Eastern banking. Oz itself is an ounce of silver or gold. Um, the Flying Monkeys are supposed to be the Plains Indians, once free but now subdued by the Wicked Witch of the West. Speaking of which, she represents the harsh environment of the frontier, the drought, and the tornadoes. And then there is water. Um, that well, represents the boon that is um, able to thwart drought and kills the Wicked Witch of the West. Finally, and I know I've probably said this already, but whether or not this is intended, we don't know. But it does certainly fit. So who knows? Finally, let's talk about the legacy of populism. It failed as a third party because uh, as a third party cause, but had a political influence for 25 years after its defeat in the 1896 election. And I would actually say even further. Um, secondly, Populist ideas carried forward during the Progressive Era from 1900 to 1920 were things like railroad legislation, the graduated income tax, the direct election of senators, initiative referendum and recall, the postal savings banks, and even the sub-treasury plan. Finally, populist ideas were geared to rural life, and yet many of populist uh, ideals appealed to urban progressives by 1900. All right, so that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, stop by iTunes and give us a five-star review. If you have issues or questions, email me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. And until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 